This is John Halsman uh, getting to you from around the world in 20 minutes. The usual Friday outlook on political risk, what's going on in the beguiling new era we find ourselves in. And this is my third take at doing this, which almost never happens. I'm good at just snapping them off in one take, a la the jazz approach that we take here in our community to looking at things. Um, but today, uh, my bag, which got lost on my recent trip to London, is finally returning, and the doorbell rang. And so as a result, um, I am trying this for a third time, but I've enjoyed saying it twice, so here we go. Um, usually, again, we do jazz riffs, and I just do these off the top of my head, which is a good way for me to think aloud with you guys, and I really like that approach. But every once in a while, I write something that I really think we need to talk about. I start that as my baseline and then riff off that. And today, I've published a piece in Conservative Home, which is a world-class paper, those of you in America might not be familiar with. And Conservative Home sort of functions as The Hill does in, in Washington, another paper I love writing for. The Hill is kind of the house paper of Capitol Hill, so you can have direct impact on what's going on by writing for that kind of in-house paper. Conservative Home is sort of the house paper of the Westminster Political Village in London, and so I love writing for them. And the other reason I love writing for them is Paul Goodman, the editor, is a good friend of mine, and Paul is one of those rarest of editors like Sasha O'Sullivan at City AM is another, my two main London editors who I both love working with because they actually add value. Most editors, you're hoping they don't do any damage to the work that you do, but Paul and Sasha add real value. So if the piece is just okay, and I never do just okay, but if they are, it makes it good. If it's good, it makes it great. If it's great, it makes it one of the all-time hits. They always knock it up a notch, and Paul has done this for me many times. I loved getting a chance to talk to him in London, where I was there with the Langham, my favorite hotel in the world. And we're sitting there having dinner together, and we discover that we have an admiration for the playwright Robert Bolt in common. And Robert Bolt is an incredibly important person you may or may not be aware of, he was a playwright and screenwriter of great significance, primarily for David Lean movies, which I adore, Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, The Mission, which I recently saw with Sarah, he was the screenwriter for, and critically, A Man for All Seasons, which is his masterpiece. And I told Paul that this was incredibly important to me because it tells the story of Sir Thomas More, who functioned as Henry VIII's early prime minister, but fell out with him over his trying to overturn the Catholic Church and for his uh, not giving in to, his, to uh, the dictates of the world and following his conscience, ultimately he was beheaded. And he desperately didn't want to be. He didn't want to be a martyr. He wanted to keep his position. He loved his ambition. He loved his worldly success. He was proud, um, even an arrogant man who loved that. And I watched when the Iraq war was unfolding, A Man for All Seasons, probably three times because I found myself in Moore's position. I was the youngest um, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, which was the largest think tank in the world. And if I didn't screw things up too badly, I would have been at least an assistant secretary of state, if not higher, um, and certainly had a chance at the big jobs. All I had to do was keep my mouth shut about the Iraq war, which in the end, like Moore, I found that I couldn't do. And so I watched this three or so times and it gave me real comfort in the fact that I wasn't alone, that other people had had to make these decisions with even greater stakes on the line and had made the right choice. And for all my many sillinesses, uh, speaking out against the Iraq war, my martyrdom, my falling on my sword in a professional sense is the best single thing I've ever did. And now I'm back in the game for some of these positions and I'm, I'm thrilled I've done it the right way. 
and I wouldn't have done this, or perhaps I, I might not have done this without Robert Bolt there to nudge me along. And so when we finished with Garrett Murch's Ezzy's Education, the delightful satire we're serializing uh, for our community. And I love that we're doing it like an old Victorian newspaper. We're serializing it bit by bit as Sherlock Holmes was serialized, Arthur Conan Doyle in uh, the Strand newspaper. So we're serializing Garrett's fantastic of satire about why America is so politically divided. When we finish with that, we'll go back to having a culture section, and I promise you the first person we'll look at is why Robert Bolt matters when we get there. But before we get there, please do look again at the mission at Lawrence of Arabia, at Dr. Zhivago, and most of all, at A Man for All Seasons. And I promised Paul that when I got back home, I would begin my piece for him on Ukraine and why Republican patience for the war is wearing thin, I would begin this with a Robert Bolt quote. So here goes. Robert Bolt's masterpiece, A Man for All Seasons, tells the story of the doomed heroic and very human Sir Thomas More. The moral is that it is easy to believe in things when they are popular, far harder and far more important to do so when they mean that you might risk something. I'm not going to be beheaded, as was More, for what I'm about to say but I do bear an unfashionable message. Almost the whole of the British elite supports the trendy hawkish view regarding the war in Ukraine, that Volodymyr Zelensky must be entirely supported and given whatever he wishes. After over a dozen meetings with every sector of the British elite recently, this uniformity of belief was by far my firm's most striking takeaway. There is literally no debate as to whether this is the wise course. We talk to people, elites in the business world, in the world of newspapers and journalism, in the world of politics, moderates, labor members, and Tories. And amazingly, they all said the same thing about Ukraine. Give him whatever he wants and the Polish view, it's on to Moscow, uh, without really thinking very much about this. One common assumption that the British made was that Ukraine was self-evidently winning the war. And a second assumption was that American support for Kiev would be endless. The only time I saw any of my British friends squirm was when I suggested that both these light, lazy suppositions are deeply questionable. First, the war is evolving into a stalemate that is likely to go on for at least the next year. Let's remember that before the Ukrainian offensive in the autumn, Russia controlled around 25% of the country. After the offensive, which was tactically successful, they control around 20% of the country. Taking Kyrgyzstan, which was the only uh, regional capital that the Russians had managed to conquer, was significant, but it wasn't Gettysburg. It didn't change the entire tenor of the war. It was a tactical success, which is predictably ground down. And let's remember, you're not winning when the other guys control 20% of your landmass. Second, despite Boris Johnson's flowery Wilsonian language during his recent visit to Washington, entirely dangerous because it's consequence-free, as is the man himself, Republican patients with endless extensive support for what amounts to at best a second order priority is wearing very thin. There was a lot of coverage in the British press about Johnson being feted by Democrats and Wilsonians, but almost no coverage about Republicans losing patience with the outcome of Ukraine and the war, which is a far more important factor. And so I wrote this as a corrective. My views are not popular, but as ever, that doesn't mean I'm wrong. Winner has predictably seen the war grind into a stalemate as the Ukrainian offense offensive has come to a halt. Now two questions going forward may well determine the political outcome of the contest. 
The two key political risk questions are, will Russian domestic alarm at a lack of victory, now that Vladimir Putin has had to call up reservists in a draft, doom his adventurism? Yes, support as best we can tell for the war within Russia is continuing the war is about 60%, but that's down from around 80 initially and heading downward, and it's good to keep our eyes. Now that he's had to nationalize the war, call up a draft, which he desperately didn't want to, will Russian support flag a year from now? Or will the U.S., which is overwhelmingly keeping the lights on in Ukraine, experience war weariness of its own? The realist danger ought to be obvious. Russia, seeing Ukraine as a first-order interest as America would Mexico, will always care more about the war in Ukraine than does the U.S. We so often leave geography out of geopolitics. The beginning of that word, Wilsonians predictably, who think every problem is equal and all of them can be solved. And this leaves geography out. If something were going on in Mexico, the United States would do everything in its power to get a positive political risk outcome. Why? Mexico's our next door neighbor. It's pretty obvious, but we've forgotten this obvious point. For Russia, Ukraine will always be its next door neighbor and will always matter more to Russia than it does to faraway America, which doesn't have any basic trading links to Ukraine. We rightly decided that this oligarch-ridden, highly corrupt entity, which is neither a pure democracy nor a pure capitalistic system, wasn't worth joining NATO, and we were right. So let's not pretend suddenly this is the most important thing going for the United States. And yet to hear everyone in Britain or the United States talk on my Twitter feed, they've come to this incredibly dangerous and, you know, idiotic conclusion. Come the spring, it's clear that Russians will throw new masses of men between 180,000 and 300,000 new conscripts onto the offensive. The Russians in the next couple weeks are going to go onto the offensive. Although little more than cannon fodder, this huge number of new troops are likely by simple numbers to make some gains, if not decisively overrun the country. As Stalin said, at a certain point, quantity does become quality. These troops are terrible. And I want to be clear, but there are enough of them that when the Russians go on the offensive, they'll make some gains, although not a Gettysburg-style moment where the war is decisively won. Then it will be the Ukrainians' turn. Bolstered by more advanced weaponry from its NATO allies, including a number of Leopard 2 tanks from Germany and Europe, which are highly useful in the terrain in Ukraine, and Abrams tanks from the U.S., which are far less useful, Kiev will likely blunt the Russian drive and undertake an offensive of their own, which in turn will grind to a halt, given Russian numerical superiority. So if all this holds, we'll be back where we are now at the end of the year in Kafka novel fashion, in an increasingly attritional World War I-style war with masses of casualty with little to show for the horrendous sacrifices the men will make this year. It is then, a year on from now, that war fatigue on both sides that I mentioned will become the overriding political risk question as to who ultimately wins the war. Little covered in the British press is that American support is already fraying. And you only have to look at polling, if anybody bothered to, to see this. This last month in January, a Washington Post poll and a recent CBS YouGov poll came to the same result. While around 80% of Democrats are in the Wilsonian tank for Zelensky and are going to write him a blank check into the future, a slight minority of Republicans for the first time is for continuing to support Ukraine. That is, again, a majority, a bare majority, it's 51, 52% of Republicans surveyed are now for not giving Ukraine any more aid. This is down from around 80% at the start of the war. This is a gigantic sea change that absolutely no one seems to be talking about. The Republicans, never fashionable at the best of times, 
have come to the deeply unpopular view that support for Zelensky, at least unpopular in the mainstream center-left Wilsonian media, let's be clear, that's what they are all, none of these people ever voted Tory or Republican in their lives that you've read, um, and they're all Wilsonians and don't even understand there might be another point of view. They're that in the tank. And they don't understand that support for Zelensky must be limited, conditional, and even come to an end over time. While almost no one in the GOP is cheerleading for Putin, this is always the response. If you don't agree with me, you're cheerleading for Putin. This is idiotic. Who's in favor of Putin winning? Absolutely no one. But that doesn't mean the Republicans are mindlessly in the tank for Kiev either. Again, January polling in the Washington Post makes this very clear. A comfortable majority of Democrats, actually an overwhelming majority, 80%, support Joe Biden's Wilsonian line, but for the first time, a bare majority of Republicans, with the trend line decisively heading ever downwards, is against giving any further aid. This bombshell has received far too little exposure in London, the rest of Europe, or indeed the United States. There are three broad realist factors that together explain the steady erosion <coughs> in Republican political support. First, years of frustration at allied free riding in terms of defense spending are finally bearing fruit. While for Washington, Ukraine is demonstrably a second or even a third order priority, it is accepted that this is not true in Europe, much closer to the fighting and much more affected by the outcome. Yet once again, the U.S. seems to care more about European security than do the Europeans. I remember Dennis Ross, who used to be Clinton's Middle East envoy, saying to me very wisely, we can't want Middle East peace more than the people of the Middle East do. Well, I would say the same now to the Wilsonian cheerleaders. I can't want European security more than the Europeans do. In terms of total aid, America has committed an eye-watering $120 billion to Ukraine, more than the rest of the world put together. Yes, we've given more aid to Ukraine than the rest of the world put together. Yet again, we're footing the bill, and Republicans have had enough. <clears throat> Europe's collective GDP is roughly the same as America's, yet 70-plus years after the founding of NATO, we find that the U.S. is still cross-subsidizing Europe's safety net so they can retire at 12, as the French seem to want, by paying a disproportionate share of the common defense. We're paying for their defense in the United States so Europeans can live the way they live. And this is driving Republicans crazy, and Europeans don't seem to make this obvious link. Enough, an increasing number of Republicans think, is enough. If the war matters as much as European hawks think, it, I was just reading Guy Verhofstadt thundering on. He's awfully brave for a man who doesn't have an army. It is time for Europeans to put their money where their mouth is or simply stop having bold, expansive postures that American taxpayers must pay for. Either get an army or shut up. Second, conveniently forgotten in the ringing Times of London editorials, is the fact that America has a debilitating set of domestic problems itself that simply aren't being addressed. There's never this notion among Wilsonians or neocons, the utopians, that there's any limit to the American budget. And this is not a mistake. They have to say this, because if there's a limit to the budget of any kind, then choices have to be made. And if choices have to be made, they can't do everything, which is what utopians want to do in the first place. And so they must always play this magic trick that the American budget is limitless. And indeed, when you add in taking care of, of dependents, we spend about a trillion dollars on our military. But we have only a 15 plus trillion dollar economy. At some point, enough is enough. And nobody alive 
given American debt rates, is for doubling defense spending, which is the only way you could do everything all at once, and even then it wouldn't be enough. But if you read Andrew Michta at all, Michael McFall, every single Wilsonian, and Applebaum, the horrendous neocon who doesn't have any self-reflection about having bungled that war, along with David Frum, Robert Kagan, not a shred not a shred of self-reflection about what they've done to the country or indeed Iraq. Indeed, they're now experts somehow again, despite being wrong about literally everything. And they act as though the United States is an endless ATM machine and they're a teenager and they can make endless withdrawals, withdrawals on dad's credit card. We simply have to move beyond this unseriousness because forgotten in all this is that America has a debilitating set of domestic problems themselves. The pandemic made plain that America's schools are a mess. Doing away with testing, as the teachers' unions advocate, won't make this glaring issue any less real. Teachers have just given up. We know we're not doing our job. We know that we're the villain of the COVID piece. We know we don't want to go back to school. We know we want our benefits without being out there. And I've been a teacher. It's the most noble profession in the world. But a huge number of teachers aren't following in this noble calling. But instead, they're living off it. And while they're indoctrinating our children, calling them racial oppressors, they're not teaching Bobby how to read. We all know that because every single mother had to sit through endless COVID calls and we see how little the children are learning. This is a gigantic problem. America's kids don't know nearly enough. At the same time, America's infrastructure is demonstrably falling apart. Anybody been to an American regional airport lately? They're not as nice as European airports. Hmm, why is that? Because we're spending our money on military matters so the Europeans can hate me from the safety of a French cafe. Um, th th our infrastructure is falling apart. Our kids don't know nearly enough. The opioid crisis with fentanyl killing 70,000 people, more than died in Vietnam. Fentanyl killed 70,000 people in 2021. I bet you didn't know that. Thank you to my chief of staff, John Goodnight, for alerting me to this reality. This is as grossly underreported at home and abroad as it is dangerous to the United States. And the reason it's dangerous to the United States is simple. It's dangerous to the United States because the people who are being hurt don't vote for the mainstream media, and so they're neglected. If you live in the middle of the country, the flyover states, as the mainstream media arrogantly call it, living in California and New York, 70,000 people dying is an abstraction because they don't know any of them. But this is a greater number than died in the whole of Vietnam. Roughly 58,000 people died in Vietnam. 70,000 died due to fentanyl just last year. Thank you, Sacklers, for that wonderful thing. And so the reality is that. And no one is addressing this. Instead, we're spending $100 billion worrying about Ukraine. This is crazy. And our border policy, another issue, is utterly non-existent. American elites don't discuss these vital issues nearly enough. Practically no one in the foreign policy commentary dwells on them at all. When I mentioned fentanyl, no one knew what I was talking about. It's just not even on the radar screen. Were they the center of the media attention, the, United, the idea that the US ought to, or at least might, choose to refocus on its domestic problems would not seem so outlandish. Kids who don't know anything, an infrastructure falling apart, an opioid crisis, a border policy problem, vast inner city crime, and if any of these things were talked about, the notion that we're going to do a third order priority and spend $100 billion on it would seem to be what it is, lunacy. Third, and the reason for my personal flagging support, is the geopolitical argument against overcommitting to Ukraine is obvious. 
The strategic future of the world, as we've said many times on the podcast, is undoubtedly in the Indo-Pacific, location of much of the world's future economic growth and much of its future political risk as China and the U.S. vie for dominance. And for that reason, my firm spends roughly 70% of our time on the region. It's safe to say that the Biden administration, in in terms of both money and focus, spends far less time on the Indo-Pacific than they should, and the obvious reason for this is the Ukraine war. Like a fruit fly, they're, they're drawn to what's immediate, but they're not drawn to what's important. The idea that America can do everything, as I said, is false, with the U.S. debt standing at an unfathomable $31 trillion, doubling defense spending to avoid making difficult foreign policy decisions as the neocons, as Applebaum and Frum and Kagan and Micta and McFall would say, it's just magical thinking. It should be obvious that the U.S. should be focusing like a laser beam on assembling the broadest possible alliance in the Indo-Pacific with India, with Japan, with Australia, with the ASEAN states, with South Korea, with the Philippines at all, training with them and arming them to the teeth in order to deter the Chinese hesitating and not making a lunge at Taiwan. If we can keep the order where it is for the next couple of years, there's a lot of good that will come out of the Indo-Pacific, but we're in the period of maximum political risk danger. Only by doing so, and hopefully peacefully halting China's adventurism, can global peace and prosperity be guaranteed for the next generation. It should go without saying, but it does not, that the strategic outcome in the Indo-Pacific is overwhelmingly more important than the fate of Ukraine. Yet nonsensically, the Biden administration is diverting weapons caches promised to Taipei to Kiev. We're literally, the, the, the Taiwanese are having a crash military modernization after being asleep at the wheel for too long. And instead of giving them weapons that they've already bought, we're giving them to Kiev. I can't think of anything dumber. For Wilsonian utopians, strategic choices never have to be made. Every problem is equal and all can be solved. But even the U.S. economy has limits, as does the patience of the American people. The public support necessary for a vast new defense spending program simply isn't there. A year from now, it is a certainty that for all these sound realist reasons, Republican support for the war will be lower than it is today. With, with the, the presidential election then on the horizon, whoever is the GOP nominee, likely to be Ron DeSantis or perhaps Donald Trump, though again, I put my money on DeSantis, they will likely share the party's view. Such a shift in the U.S. position will then come as a shock. I can see the headlines to pretty much everyone in the mainstream media and certainly everyone in Britain and Europe, but they will have nobody to blame but themselves for not seeing it coming. Because for all these realist reasons, Republican patience for Ukraine is rightfully wearing very thin. And it's time for us to say this. And so like Thomas More, I have. Listen, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, It's good to be brave together. It's good to think things that are real and hard to say. And I think that's why our community is so great and is growing so quickly. Again, to those of you who have subscribed, thank you ever so much. Those of you who haven't, Please do so now. Again, we're only asking $70 a year, $7 a month, $70 a year to give you this utterly refreshing, cutting-edge look at the world as it actually is lived, warts and all, so we can make it better. Thanks ever so much. Have a great weekend. And now it's off to the cats.